This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The choice for American foreign policy shouldn't be framed as simply imperialism versus disengagement. Christopher Coyne, in his new book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy, discusses what he views as workable, serious ways to engage with the world that don't involve expanding or maintaining an American empire. We spoke earlier this month. When we talk about uh, economics broadly, we... uh, talk about like what rules govern the relations that we might engage in as human beings and sort of come to the conclusion that a good rule is one that allows for a lot of transactions. Uh, When it comes to animosities between countries, you want the opposite of that. And our rules in many cases are meant to prevent or at least give us due consideration, give us time for due consideration before making a potentially disastrous decision on behalf of a government. Um, So I guess, how do you view the incentives and the rules that uh, we, that governments around the world accept when it comes to uh, animosities that might bubble up. Yeah, well, that's a, a big question, one, one that has uh, troubled scholars for for centuries. Uh, and so, on the one hand, you can see the argument that, as you put it quite nicely, when there's animosities, you need rules for engaging that, but also who is going to engage it. And and in the world we live in now, uh, people typically view nation states as having a critical role, and really a few nation states in the in the post, uh, you know. Cold War period, the United States, and so what's known kind of as the unipolar moment, where the U.S. government was the dominant government of the world, and uh, you know they they make an argument. A lot of people make an argument that the U.S. government has a global and international role to both establish rules and enforce those rules. And and one of the things I'm trying to wrestle with in the book is, on the one hand. You can see why that argument exists. But on the other hand, we have really good arguments for why big government poses a whole host of problems. And so what happens when you centralize and expand uh, enormous amounts of power and control in the hands of a a single government? So uh, an enormous amount of power in the hands of a single government, um, in some ways that's unavoidable. Well, maybe. Uh, To the extent that people have control over what their government does, then it's, it is avoidable. You can delineate the scope of what government is and is not allowed to do. Let me provide an example. You know, you can make the argument, given that government provides security and defense, so let's just assume for the sake of discussion it, it's going to do those things, there's an enormous scope of different actions it can take. It can, it can take actions that are largely defensive, meaning that only when there are immediate threats to the homeland itself would the government act or can take a much more expensive expansive view of defense which oftentimes becomes offensive uh, and that's kind of the role america has today it's it's more of a proactive empire world police entity as compared to a purely defensive entity that protects the domestic interests of uh, the American people. And I know this is a question that has long since been dispensed with uh, here at the Cato Institute, but what's wrong with that? With American empire? Yeah. Uh, well, for, for many people, even though some classical liberals, by the way, nothing, it's desirable. From my perspective, it, that view biases 
the conversation towards the goods that empire provides or potential goods while neglecting the bads. And, and the risk, of course, is multiple, but I'll highlight two of them. One is that in attempting to provide goods, you actually provide bads. And so, you know, one of the classic insights of, of international relations theory is the security dilemma. Uh, one country adopts weapons to defend themselves, they become more secure, but it makes other societies less secure or feel less secure. And in certain circumstances, that can lead to a spiraling effect, which actually leads to, to, to greater conflict or potential of conflict, in which case the world is more dangerous, uh, not safer. The second aspect, of course, then, is the domestic effects, which is that once you grant government this power, we tend to think, well, it's foreign policy, so it's going to project that power abroad. It's going to be used over there. But in many instances, it's turned around and used against the very people that government purports to protect. And when that's the case or when that possibility exists, I think there's good reason to be skeptical of claims that government is protecting us. But also practically, it, it leads to, in my view, calls for tight constraints on, on government to the extent it's going to do these things. All right. So what do you see as the best avenues forward for the United States to uh, dismantle its empire or avoid empire building exercises in the future? Yeah, well, you know, there, there's many different views, even among classical liberals and libertarians on this. So, as I mentioned, some people are, are quite supportive of a, a, a massive proactive empire type apparatus because they think it brings order to the world. Others take more of a limited government or what's oftentimes referred to as a restraint type view that governments should still serve this function, the American government, but in a much more limited capacity. Um, you know, any move towards that restraint kind of position, I would find preferable based on my own analysis of the situation. That said, I've, I've come to the position that I'm not sure even that is a sustainable situation, meaning that the internal dynamics of, of government, of the apparatus itself, which is bureaucracy writ large, which is cronyism writ large, is, is always going to have enormous pressure to expand, even if at a point in time it was smaller. And so what I try to argue in the conclusion of, of this new book is that we need to take a hard look at alternatives to nation-state provision of defense. And oftentimes that falls on the shoulders of citizens. Uh, and so if we're truly focused on defense, so defending from threats, citizens can do a lot of stuff. And they already do. All of us take steps to secure our person and property. Uh, and even if you look at major attacks, look at the 9-11 attacks. The American government failed its people. The most effective defense on the day of 9-11 were private citizens. They're the ones who on Flight 93, when the government was confused, didn't know what was happening. They're the ones that rallied together and actually stopped one of the flights from crashing into its intended targets, and they were the true heroes. They literally sacrificed their lives to do that. That did not require any kind of, of massive national security state apparatus. And then if you look at subsequent type attacks like the underwear bomber, the shoe bomber, these are all people that got through airport security and that private citizens detained until they landed. And that doesn't mean private citizens could stop every threat. But I think oftentimes by biasing the discussion analysis around the nation state, assuming that the nation state is necessary for all defense, it neglects the creativity and entrepreneurship that might occur at the more local level. What about entrepreneurship within government agencies that are designed to protect the United States? 
Yeah. Well, usually the problem. I mean, is, it, exi- it exists. It, it exists, but the interesting aspect of entrepreneurship in government agencies is it's not the same as in a market, and and by design, government's a large nonprofit by design. It, the people we don't want it to be those who designed it didn't want it to be part of a market. They want it to be outside of it. But what what do I mean by that? Well, entrepreneurship over what and towards what end? If you are driven by maximizing your budget instead of profit and loss, you're going to behave differently in terms of the entrepreneurial opportunities you pursue. Many of the entrepreneurial developments in the national security state are things entailing controlling people, becoming more efficient at controlling and harming people. And so look at something like the surveillance state. The surveillance state is, you could make the argument, is a illustration of state entrepreneurship. It is a a small group of people who have a highly technologically advanced, secretive surveillance apparatus, but it can be deployed against potentially bad people, but against citizens as well. And we know it has historically, and it is to this day, despite everyone knowing that it's used outside of constitutional constraints, by the way. Are there upsides to encouraging entrepreneurship within, say, the military or within our uh, intelligence agencies? I think it depends what you mean by entrepreneurship, meaning towards what end. Again, I think the important- How, how many F-35s do we need? Right. Well, that's part of that's part of the interesting thing. So, so what is entrepreneurship in this case, and how do those processes occur? F thirty five is a perfect example. The the because there is no disciplinary device like in markets, we we get exactly what we should expect that we get, which is expenditures, observable outputs, and waste is both accepted and oftentimes rewarded with bigger budgets. So I think it was just last week, maybe two weeks ago, that the most recent annual audit results of the Pentagon came out and they failed again. They they were only able to submit to an audit like I think five years ago, even though there was a law in the late 90s under the, under the Clinton administration that all of the major agencies needed to be pass an audit, which seems reasonable. And uh, the, you know, even under this current audit, which the, the Pentagon failed, they can't account for a significant portion of their inventory of expenditures and so on. And so, again, it's very predictable. You have a massive apparatus uh, and uh, government apparatus and little accountability within it, and no one punishes it, punishes them. I mean, Congress keeps giving them bigger budgets. We're headed towards a trillion-dollar base budget for the Department of Defense. How much of that is a, the gentleman's agreement among branches of the military that is uh you get yours i get mine and neither of us complains about the other sure i think that's part of it i think part of it is the relationship or what some people refer to as the iron triangle so you have members of of congress you have uh, bureaus you have special interest groups and they all benefit from this arrangement the interesting thing about the military sector is that uh, there's bipartisan support because everyone get something from it. Labor unions get from it, uh, something from it. Corporations get something from it. Government bureaus get something from it. And so uh, there's there's a lot of support. uh, And that's part of the problem. Congress is oftentimes complicit uh, in uh, their duties to to monitor this. And so they can't be trusted to do so, which is part of the reason I'm so skeptical of it is because there's really no checks and balances um, that are applied to this sector of our of our government. So uh, if I understand you correctly, one of the problems that you identify is that there is an insufficient appreciation for the degree to which our uh, intended projected outward power 
comes home. This is like it's a it's a lot of your work is wrapped up in sort of trying to increase people's understanding that when we project power outward, ultimately a lot of that power gets projected uh, toward uh, American citizens who have rights. Yep. So that's part of it in, in this current book. Uh, part of it's the domestic effects on the economy, on liberties. But more broadly, what I'm tackling in this book is the argument that an American empire is necessary in order to bring order to the world, in order to spread liberal values. Empire is inherently illiberal. It is at odds with all the fundamental liberal values. It requires illiberal people to operate it. And so the the idea of a liberal empire, which again, even among classical liberals, some accept, is is a misnomer and it's, it, there's an inherent tension in it. The risk being that undertaking potentially or, or in name liberal activities which generate illiberal outcomes will not just undermine liberalism, but also undermines the broader values themselves. You know, those on the left who critique capitalism, for instance, as being imperialistic, in some way, you can see what they're saying because oftentimes capitalists have partnered with the state, what, what we would refer to as political capitalism or cronyism, to use the military instrument to advance their interests. To my way of thinking, that is nothing inherent in markets, free markets. That is the, the military instrument and politics and, and the dynamics of that that allows that to occur. But you can see why those criticisms exist. And then among authoritarian governments, so think of south of the border where the U.S. government has intervened throughout Central Latin America for, for decades, if not centuries, uh, many of those governments use the arguments of American being an imperialistic empire to rally support among their citizens, to, to maintain their authoritarian measures because they say, see, that's what, that's what liberalism, that's what capitalism brings you. It's empire. They want to invade your country. They want to impose things upon you. And they have some good points because that's what's happened. And that's just some of the bads that come about internationally. Ultimately, the idea of a liberal order backstopped by force means that illiberalism drives the system. And so to the extent that that a person like myself values liberal values in and of themselves, that's troubling and problematic and, and means you have to think about alternatives to it. So the alternatives, does that include projecting less power overseas? Yeah. So again, the, the, the way I think about it, it's kind of gradations. So we have this apparatus now. If we did less compared to what we're doing now, I'd be choose that as preferable. So closer to this kind of restraint type view where the apparatus still exists, but in a much more limited form. But even beyond that, I think we can think about alternatives. I, I, again, I think moving away from the idea that the nation state is the end all and be all and the American nation state is the end all and be all of order, liberty, and all that's good in the world has to change. That's ultimately the only way to constrain this apparatus. Otherwise, the very reason for its existence is to project power. All of the incentives push in the direction of projecting power. The Constitution, even though it supposedly has checks which start with Congress, but there's others as well, doesn't work. It's an empirical reality. It doesn't work. Congress doesn't check the military sector very well. The military sector doesn't check itself. Whistleblowers, they can be effective, but even when they do their thing, they typically get raked over the coals. Uh, and uh, by those in the apparatus who are who who run the risk of losing power due to what they reveal. And so from that standpoint, it's uh, kind of uh, uh, 
reason for pessimism, but I think there's reason for optimism from the standpoint that there's a solution. And the solution is not to be found in turning to more government as our savior, but looking to alternatives. Some on the right look to alternatives from countries like China in terms of how the, uh, what the foreign policy stance ought to be. They see things occurring in foreign countries that we would view as illiberal, and they say that is good, and we should emulate that. Well, I'm certainly not a, a, a fan of, of emulating China or, or others in terms of, of how they carry out their policy, because I think, too, they are illiberal, but also authoritarian on, very, on many margins. But so, too, is the American government. I, I, I also think, you know, that right now, of course, the rallying call is Russia and China. That's the big threat. That's what everyone's saying. That's what everyone, all, all the main policymakers in, in America are rallying around that. And, you know, the way I think about it is certainly there are threats in the world. I'm not denying there are threats. Certainly there's going to be outbreaks of violent conflict around the world. That's just human life. But what can the American government do about it? So you think about China. What are the possibilities? One is you try to neuter them, and you neuter them through a mix of economic sanctions, tariffs, and so on, and whether it's on the semiconductors and all that type of stuff that's happening, um, or and or you move military hardware and troops into that area and try to balance power, as the argument goes. But again, the risk you run there is that you actually run the risk of, of leading to a spiral of conflict because as you move closer to them, you make them feel less safe. They're going to make moves in response. And so one of the things that strikes me as odd, like with the, all the stuff with Taiwan, is you keep having like people like Pelosi go over, which is an official visit, which sends a signal to China. Then China responds with military exercises in the wake of that because, of course, they respond. And it's like, see, China's acting aggressively. Well, how do you think they view it. They view it as America acting aggressively. And so part of this process of, of trying to, to, to focus on peace instead of force as, as the undergirding of peace or potential force is trying to see things from the perspective of other people, even if they are authoritarian. How does Putin view the world? Let's have that conversation. What, the easy thing is like Putin's crazy. He's nuts and there's no reason with him and you just got to fight with him. That is certainly possible, but an alternative is that he is responding to certain things as he perceives them and how his government partners perceive them. And if we can try to understand that and reason through it, I think we could have a more informed policy and potentially one that does less harm. And I think it's the same thing for China and all these other threats. I, I feel like the American public, when confronted with uh, threats that are posed by Russia, which are significant, and threats that are posed by China, which are significant, even if they're not uh, immediate, um, they fall into sort of a, a very traditional view of what the American military is for. Yeah. So, so the first thing is, I, I don't know how much of a threat China and Russia actually poses. I, I, I I think that they certainly don't pose a direct threat to America, the nation, the homeland itself. Certainly not right now. Um, th that is, there is no indication, at least that's known publicly, that there's any kind of direct threat to us. 
The argument is there's threats to our interests, but that's part of the issue, I think, is that what counts as the national interest has become so elastic and expansive that it's literally the entire world. You can, uh, policymakers can justify doing anything they want in the name of the national interest. So, again, we're going to have to live in a world, at least in the short run and the medium run, probably, where China and Russia exist. So, the, the, the pathways and again, these are, are nuanced within these categories, but the pathways are we can ramp up conflict with them or potential conflict, or we can try to uh, find a way to coexist. And my preference is the latter. That doesn't mean that is my first best state of the world, but we can assume a asymmetry of assumptions. So we can't assume that, that China and Russia, everything they do is evil, everything they do is bad, everything they do is a threat, and everything America does is good. And there's no bad people in the American government. And all power that is projected both abroad and at home will be used for good. And once we get that symmetry of assumptions, it, it, it gives us a, a much more balanced view of the, the costs and benefits broadly understood of different policies. Chris Coyne is author of In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace. We spoke earlier this month. It's that time of year when I ask you, yes, you, to show your support for this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute with a gift. You can visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. <laughs>